welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have Param Nassari, VP of Regulatory Strategy and Partnership for InvestorCom. I brought Param on the show today for a bit of a different subject, specifically to talk about the implementation of something known as client-focused reforms. This is one of the biggest series of regulatory changes to happen in the investment industry in Canadian history. And while the average consumer may not really have an understanding for what's going to happen or what's going to change for them, these reforms are going to change the way your advisor has to operate and in turn actually interact with you. So I brought him on the show to raise awareness of this such that you know when dealing with your advisor what to be aware of, what some of these implications are of. And if you're not seeing this level of due diligence, the question, why not? So basically, like I said, very important. I brought him on to give us some greater breadth to this. So with that, here's my interview with Parham Nassari. Parham, thanks for joining me today. Very nice to be here, Jason. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So Parham, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. All right. So I work for a company by the name of Investorcom. Investorcom has been around since 1992. And fundamentally, our, our, our MO in the market is to help wealth and asset managers comply with regulations. We have a fun anecdote saying uh, that we help our clients with uh, their compliance pain relief. Well, excellent. And there's always there's one world that's ever expanding in this universe, right? One part of the financial industry that's ever expanding in this universe right now, it's compliance. Uh, you know, it's, it's seen exponential growth, which is good and bad. Uh, it raises costs, but great in that hopefully it protects consumers better. So tell us about these client-focused reforms. Like what is this and where did it come from and what's it trying to accomplish? Yeah, Jason, this is such a timely discussion because the client-focused reforms specifically have to, they have to be implemented by the end of this year, but th- and this year being 2021, whoever's uh, thinking about when- Well, when this will air this year. Don't worry about that. Okay. Sometimes <laughs> the end, we never know. And, but the backdrop of this is a little bit important because securities regulators around the world, and I mean sort of the Western world, modern sort of uh, economies that have the Securities Act and the weighted sort of a, a capital markets forum, Around the world, they've been trying to increasingly focus their attention on reforms that aim to improve investor protection. If we go back a few years, it was all about disclosure. Make sure that if investor is going to purchase a mutual fund or an ETF, hey, make sure they understand what it is that they're that they're acquiring, what they're investing in. Right. And as part of that, everybody received a piece of paper that said, hey, here's the cost risks of that particular investment. Was it perfect? Maybe not. Maybe some would argue it is perfect. Some would argue it's overburdensome anyways. But argue it's not, and that it's not fully completely disclosing all fees on these statements, but let's continue on. Right. All right. Everybody's aware that there are hidden fees. And, 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 and so is disclosure the best model, right? The caveat enter, buyer beware, is that theoretically the best model in a complicated environment, in a complex environment, such as the investment management universe, right? Would you go to a doctor and say, all right, here, I want a painkiller, just disclose to me all the different variables. Is a particular investor or patient, are they going to be able to understand the, the risks, the costs and benefits of, of, of taking particular medication? Now, what's been happening across the, the, the securities world is the regulators have said, all right, let's move forward from just the plain disclosure model and ensure and, and mandate specific 
regulations that require investment advisors and wealth management firms to act in their clients' best interest. Okay, so that's a really, really bold and audacious uh, new regulatory requirement. Obviously, again, going back to what Jason mentioned about kind of imperfections, what the regulators aren't trying to do is kind of clean up every single wrong that's going on in the industry. What they're trying to do is raise the bar and say, okay, how can we actually ensure or mandate that the advisor has to act in their client's best interest? Now, if you're kind of thinking about this critically, which I hope you are, the question mm-hmm. might pop up, pop up in your head, which is, well, wait a minute, is my advisor not acting in my best interest today? And now the regulators are going to require them. And this is why actually the regulations- Sadly, not really, but continue. I'll get to that. I'll go on my as you, can, as you can see, Jason has his particular views on this, or as you can hear. So the, the notion of best interest is kind of was, what was the impetus behind the client focus reform, at which point the industry kind of pushed back and said, hey, client focus reforms, it's about the client. And the, these new reforms should be focused on the client, not this best interest principle, because there's a negative connotation with now that, uh, now that you're saying you have to act in your client's best interest, advisors have to which kind of suggests that they weren't, may, they may not have been before. By contrast, by the way, uh, same set of regulations were also in place in the U.S. Let's Our take a step the- on that. Okay, hold on. So those same set of regulations, and this is the key, and this is where I, I'll go on my, my pulpit here. I'm a big believer that financial advisors and planners should have a fiduciary responsibility to their clients. That is singly, that is the single highest standard when it comes to the court of law that says it's never mind suitability, never mind best interest at all times, the client must come first. Right. And the reason why that same regulation came into place in the U S was because of a series of interesting rulings where initially they tried to impose a fiduciary responsibility on the entire, on the entire industry because only a part of it, the RA market, actually had that responsibility. The industry then fought back, big surprise, and there was a giant giant fight, and the SEC decided to punt the decision and basically came up with this other thing called regulation best interest, which basically is not a fiduciary responsibility. Best interest and fiduciary responsibility, you might get micro-slicing it. Bottom line is words have power, otherwise people wouldn't be avoiding them. So Point being, they tried to, they basically came up with this. Michael Kitsis, a colleague and friend, I will call him a friend in, in the US, uh, his organization, XYPN, actually fought this at the court level. And the court actually agreed that the SEC shouldn't have done this, but they had no power to stop it. In fact, the guys who wrote the act that the SEC was acting under said the SEC has no right to do this based on the act we wrote. And there's still debate because Biden in the election said that he would impose a fiduciary responsibility. We'll see if that happens. There's some hope. But the reality is, is that this is not the highest standard of care for consumers. And frankly, I believe firmly that we should have that. But continue. Yeah. yeah. J- Jason, I think you in a, in a I think, 30 second uh, tangent really, really covered off kind of a historical context in the U.S. Let me sort of if I were, if I could, I'll sort of summarize it this way. I'll say there's always going to be challenges between the industry and sort of the consumer advocates or investor advocates. And that world is never going to be 100% perfect. Are we moving in the right direction? In my, in my humble view, I think we are, right? To just go back to my comment earlier around sort of prior to this client-focused reforms implementation, what was truly required was just purely disclosure, mm-hmm. right? Not to say people were out there not acting in their client's best interest, but purely from a regulation perspective, it was like, hey, buyer beware. Let me, I'm recommending this product for your retirement, for your nest egg. Here's the disclosure. 
Now we're saying, look, before you make that recommendation with the client focus reforms, what Reg BI is trying to do is to say, look, before you make that recommendation for that client, not only does it have to be suitable, it actually has to be in their best interest. And they've codified in a principled manner what needs to be done in order to make those recommendations. So totally agree with your, your, your notion around fiduciary obligations and, and financial professionals actually acting more as fiduciaries. I think it gets into the, personally, uh, not wearing my firm hat here, I think that gets into a little bit of a legalese concept. It does, but it, it does. And this is the thing. It's, you know, if we're going to say that if law is going to define fiduciary responsibility as the highest level of care that one can have to a party that they are servicing, right? And the industry as a whole is doing, and I've had this debate many times where like, well, this isn't going to solve stuff or whatever it is. You know, they're always going to be with some sort of reply. It's like, look, if this word did not have power, you wouldn't be running from it. And frankly, given that the entire industry is based off of client trust, it is 100%. Without trust, the entire financial industry doesn't exist. Given that, and given the fact that if you pulled someone off of the streets in Canada and asked, do you believe that your advisor has to act in your best interest at all times ahead of their own? You know, the response is either going to be, I don't know, or I sure as hell hope so. And if we're living off of this, if we're basically existing off of this, I'm not going to call it a lie, but it's misconception then we are negative. We are extracting something. We're extracting a trust that we don't deserve through law. And that's not right. Anyway, hey, I'll get down if I'm hoping. Look, you said that, Jason, really, really well. And I think that's the underlying foundation of our industry and the success of our industry, right? Can you, can you argue against what you said? And if somebody does and says, yeah, you know what? Trust is not important. Right. <laughs> the foundation more often than not, it's like, well, we're just gonna get sued more. It's like, well, if we right. get sued more, it's because we did yeah. something to justify the being sued. So please tell me why that's a problem. Right. I think, I mean, this is this is a little bit off topic uh, from, from my perspective, but I'd say it is paramount. It is so paramount. And I think at the underpinning issue is in the industry, there's a delineation between what is a truly a financial professional who's out there trying to act in your best interest quote unquote, a fiduciary versus someone who's out there just selling products, right? Think about a, you know, a car salesman or you go yeah. to Best Buy and someone's giving you advice. Hey, you want headphones? Here's a better headphone. Are they yeah. going to make more commission off that more expensive headphone? Maybe. Yeah. So that's the distinction between what's happening in the industry. You and nailed it. If I wait, a friend of mine nailed that too. He said, basically, here's the real problem. The problem is the industry wants all the salespeople to appear to be advisors right? That's the reality of it. And this is part of the problem. This is part of why there's so much pushback on title reform and people are trying to water it down. It's because the reality is the, especially the large institutions out there, especially at various levels of those institutions, they are salespeople, right? They are salespeople with quotas with, and you know, they can deny that they don't have, that they have quotas, but my response is always great. Sell nothing for a month and see how that works out for your job. Okay. Like, the second someone can run that experiment and survive, I would be I would be shocked and amazed. Point is, is that the majority of the industry is salespeople. They do not want to be called salespeople, and they want to have the auspice of being a professional. But the reality is, is that that's not the case. And unfortunately, not enough people stand up to try to push for the clear delineation between those two. Hey, that's exactly I think the genesis behind these regulations that say, mm-hmm. look, the regulators have sort of come to a point where they say, look. Just recommending a product without any due diligence, without just really truly knowing the client, ain't gonna cut it, right? So now, uh, post post December of 2021, there is going to be an added level of pressure on firms to truly act 
in a more aligned manner to, to their clients. That's truly why the regulations have been put into place. Are there going to be kind of loopholes around this potentially? And I think firms who do that are eventually over a longer term going to lose business because of that underlying principle that you mentioned, Jason. Well, we, hope. We, we hope. So yeah, we, we got on a bunch of rabbit holes, but in the interest of time, let's make sure we get back to the core here. There's kind yeah. of three major tent poles to this reform. So let's talk about each of them at a time. So please start with the first one. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, the three that Jason, you mentioned is is in, in enhancements to existing requirements. Number one is a specific requirements around the know your client rule. And I think uh, the know your client rule is going to be expanded to the benefit of a client. What's now being specifically called out is, hey, in addition to understanding what your risk tolerance is, what, your, what the particular investor or client's risk tolerance is, a financial professional now has to understand the, 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 the risk capacity of a client. Why? Because those could conflict from time to time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody could say, hey, I love Bitcoin. I want to invest in Bitcoin. But do they necessarily have the capacity from a financial perspective to take that increased level of risk? So this is, and I'm going to pick your brain on this one. So this is a, a clear difference that some people are going to get lost in. Okay, so risk tolerance, according to academia, is your ability or your personality around risk, right? Your, so how, how much are you willing to tolerate risk? But that's a kind of a personality trait, typically measured by psychometric profiling questionnaires, which by the way, most of the industry uses absolute garbage questionnaires that were developed by their marketing department and don't even, aren't even traditionally calculated properly. But there's a number of really good and a never expanding number of third-party tools that are tested rigorously by academia. So that's the first, and by the way, for any advisor who is not using something tested by academia and using something by a marketing department, I have spoken to the OSC on this. And I said, you should have put that in, but it would have to be tested. And they're like, oh, well, we didn't say that, but that's what we're going to test. <laughs> so it's like, you better be getting this right. Capacity is one's ability to absorb risk. That's the difference, right? So one is a general kind of predisposition. The other one is, can I actually in my personal life take this? Now, here's my question to you. I don't understand for the life of me how that can be done without a financial plan. Without a financial plan that tests for someone's ability to absorb loss, how is it possible to measure capacity? And I, I really don't know. Yeah. You know what, Jason, I think this goes back to kind of the point about our industry kind of maturing, our industry kind of trying to take incremental steps to up their game, right? So to your point, do you need... Would a financial plan be a beneficial process in, in kind of map optimizing that KYC or risk tolerance piece? Probably, right? That, that's going to get you further along. Let me say it this way. Are most financial professionals going to have or should they have a good idea of what Parliament Series' ability and willingness to take risk is? They should. If I'm an existing client of a, of a financial advisor and they don't know that, that's a little bit of a problem. So what the regulations are trying to do, right, in principle, say, look, Really get to know your client, right? And to the best degree possible. Now, are there going to be, uh, to your point, Jason, are there going to be really 10 out of 10 ways of doing that? 100%. But what the regulators are saying is, look, codify this process, right? If Parm Nasseri has a, <laughs> is very, uh, has a high risk appetite, right? And wants to acquire tech startups and, and, and you know, <laughs> uh, every, every brand new cryptocurrency invest in it. Okay. He's got a high risk tolerance, but... Does he have the capacity? So that question needs to come. So what was happening before is kind of, we got to take a quick step back. What was happening before was an investor would say, look, I want to buy some penny stocks. Can you give me access to a penny stock? Or I have a high risk tolerance. Advisor Mm -hmm. would say, okay, let's work with you on some of those high, you clearly have a high risk tolerance. 
The question that's now being asked is, look, does Prime Nasseri have the financial profile yep. to be able to assume those risks? I yep. could have six mortgages and be neck deep in debt. Maybe yep. I should not be taking my, yeah. my, my you know, retirement savings and investing it in, in the highest risk thing because yep. if that implodes, I hear you. So that's, that's I mean, to me, it's going to be the, the, the real litmus test is where do people draw the minimum bar on this? I'll be interested to see in a couple of years just how effective this is. So with this, how often do all the traditional KYC things like address, employment, basically, uh, what's it called, wages, and now risk profile, how often is that going to be expected to be updated under, under new CF, uh, CFR rules? I think this is a little bit of a trap for me, Jason. Uh, uh, so <laughs> so they, they've actually uh, codified this. So what wasn't necessarily uh, specified as, as to the greatest detail before was given whatever channel of operation, how frequently does a financial advisor or professional have to call their client and say, all right, update me on your current circumstances. This goes to a point we were talking about earlier, Jason, sort of the frequency of this touch base or KYC, annual KYC process has been codified, meaning that you are going to get your financial advisor calling you and saying, hey, tell me what's changed. Tell me what's going on. Tell me about your total assets, total liabilities. You're going to feel like that's a little bit of an infringement of your privacy. Or why is this person asking me this again and again? But the, the, again, the intention behind the regulation is for the financial advisor who's giving you investment recommendations for them to truly know yeah. how your circumstances have changed. I think, Jason, I'm going to front run this because <laughs> if I was you, I would say, well, should you do it more often, right? Should, should Do you need a regulator to come in and say, hey, thou shall talk to your client at least once a year? Yeah. No, no, most financial advisors are actually doing it way more frequently than that, quarterly, semi-annually, whichever, monthly, right? Yep. It depends on that relationship, but there are folks who don't do it. Yeah. Right. Clients who don't reply, just like there's, you know, it happens. I actually think, you know, this may sound a little bit contradictory for me. I actually think a lot of that will probably be handled through a digitized workflow. You get an email saying, here's our record for you. Please update. Advisor will be notified of any di- of any changes to that profile. Right. And I am generally okay with that because there are certain things like, hey, I maybe talk to my client every three months or whatever it is, but they decided to quit their job two weeks after I spoke to them last. And, you know, I didn't know that. Right. I didn't know that. And then the end of the year comes up and did I update this? And now I'm, you know, I'm behind the eight ball. Right. So I have a little problem with the digitization of that. I think if anything, it'll it's it's going to be a default going forward. So KYC, anything else we know about that before we move on? I think I think we've covered the, the gist of it in good faith. Yeah. So bottom line, as a consumer, you should expect your advisor to be bugging you more for this information on a regular basis. If they're not, and they're just leaving you and there's nothing being updated, they're not living up to their requirements. So the second one um, is the bigger kind of newer one, the KYP. Tell us about that one. All right. So here's my my opinion. I think uh, what was KYP stands for knowing your product. And it's a little bit, it, sound, it sounds kind of funny if I were to get into it theoretically with you, Jason, but the, the, the new obligations are that the a the firm that you're you're dealing with the financial institution you're working with has some process in place for mm-hmm. being a gatekeeper of the products that they're putting making available to their financial advisors and you in turn and then the individual advisor the individual financial professional has to do some additional due diligence around the products that they're making that they're recommending for you in your portfolio fundamentally Think about this KYP piece as this gatekeeper function. Gone are the days where a financial advisor can recommend a product to a client, to an investor, 
without the firm knowing what the heck that product is all about, mm-hmm. how that product's changing. Is that product in my client's best interest? So let me step back a little bit, Jason, on this, because prior to the client focus reforms, the regulators, there was guidance around know your product. Everybody had to do it, but it was just guidance. Nobody had Where said, was the, yeah, exactly. Where was the actual like methodology for it? Exactly. Nobody said, hey, thou shall do this. It was like, hey, it's good practice. Make sure you mm-hmm. follow good practice, right? So what the regulators have done is they've codified. They said, look, come the end of 2021, we expect you to have a process at an entity level, at a firm level, and also at the individual advisory level. Let me geek out on this a quick minute. At the firm level, what they've prescribed is, hey, firm, you've got to have a process for approving the products you, you, you make available to your, to your firm. I have a process for monitoring changes, significant changes. So if a risk of a product changes or fees of the product changes, you have to know that at an entity level. And also you have to monitor your shelf uh, and assess the products that you're making available to your to your end, to, 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 to the underlying advisors. And then at the, at the individual level, it's sort of the KYP segues or straddles between suitability and, and which is the, the third element and, and KYP. And the financial advisor really Instead of saying, here's a fun fact document, here's a prospectus, buyer beware, here's a disclosure. Now the financial advisor has to prove that they've done some due diligence. Okay. And due diligence could mean. (laughs) Uh, You see me laughing, continue. (laughs) I just keep seeing the smirk go up, uh, Jason, the uh, leading indicator of what kind of questions are going to get back. So let me me address what I hear when I hear this. So, first off, I see. So I'll address the entire, they have to prove it. As someone who's been in this business for over 20 years, and it's just like, oh, you want me to record my reasoning for why I'm doing X? And my response is like, also as a CFA and holding myself to the standards, just like, what were people doing before, right? Like how, like, if you don't have a methodology for selecting investments, and that's not like, can't be like, even if you didn't have it, if you can't document that in five minutes on a notepad, as this is my process, and this is what I typically follow, but it's, you know, it's been informed, if you can't document that, something is wrong. Now that, don't get me wrong, I mean, plenty of stories in the industry about, you know, just there was the whole, I, I got a good relationship with this wholesaler or this new product came out, whatever it is. And the diligence levels are abysmal for many advisors out there. Very true. But I always, I laugh at this and say like, you mean we're supposed to be documenting what we're supposed to be doing in the first place? Fantastic, right? This is why I've never had a problem with most changes. It's like, I'm already doing this. The second thing, and let's, let's you know, we discussed this previously. So this new level of obligation, the second I read it, I thought to myself, well, this is going to lead a number of institutions to basically block anything but proprietary products, meaning the product that they, they manufacture themselves, specifically banks, and various levels of those institutions have been doing this. I would say that's an excuse and a poor one, but nevertheless, that is something you're probably going to see if you're dealing with certain financial institutions and say, hey, we no longer, perfect example, and this is open record, TD announced this, right? TD announced this for TD Financial Planning that no longer going to support third-party mutual funds or whatever else it is. We're just going to do our own. Now, that's a negative. Let me say one other thing before I go back to you, and it's advisors' reaction to the KYP issue. The number of advisors I hear who are freaking out, like, oh, that means they're going to shorten my product shelf, and I'm, you know, I don't want that. And my response is, there's tens of thousands of fund codes in this country. How many do you need access to to really get your job done? And it's, it's amazing. Like, if someone wants to, people are terrified that this esoteric things are going to come out the next month. And they're not going to have access to it when any institution I speak to on the independent side, it's like, no, no, if you want access to it and you're willing to do the research and we can support the research and you're willing to commit to it, we will do the research for it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Love this. That's my rant. 
You yeah. tell me about what everything I just said and where I'm right or wrong. <laughs> I, I think it, what's, what's healthy about our conversations is I think you've got, you got slightly different uh, views on Your this. Points, yeah. I, not, not to say, not to say, but look, the outcome is going to, the proof is in the pudding, right? Come yep. the end of 2021 or come next year when everybody sort of opens the uh, kimono a little bit, we're going to be able to see how our clients going to go to, going to be attracted to advisors who give them more options or less options. That's the end result. That's the end state that we're all sort of looking at to see, hey, are these regulations effective? Let's start with the whole principle of being a gatekeeper of the products you're making bill. The firm's responsibility. Is it a good thing that firms now have to be that gatekeeper and say, all right, which think about it as a car dealership, right? Yeah. Does a car dealership know what kind of products are going in and outside of its, of its dealership? It well, should they had liability anyway. These were the institutions getting sued when something went wrong. So how is it that they weren't gatekeeping before? Right. And this is why I think that there's lots of people who throw eggs at regulation and say, oh, it regulation, it impedes problems. Like this is actually, what the regulator is saying is, look, this is actually a good thing. Have a process firm. Have a process for that gatekeeping function. And look, my firm, obviously we're, in the, we're a software provider to the same firms. When we did a study, how much material or significant change happens, Given the 60,000 product codes that are out there in the universe, it's a lot. It's, it's over 20,000 changes on average per week. That's why firms were not doing it before. It was not humanly possible, right? Now, the requirements are saying, look, it's codified. You got to do it. You have to and come up with a process. And so it facilitates, in my opinion, innovation where people say, all right, you pointed out the workflow process, digitizing the workflow. You've got a workflow process. And then a lot of firms are taking that up and saying, all right, instead of hiring someone or instead of not doing this, let me be take control of that gatekeeping function, both in principle and in my client's best interest. So if a fee goes up or down, let me be aware of that change and notify my clients. So gatekeeping function, KYP process, fundamentally good, and it's going to have a long-term benefit to clients. Now, are there firms who are going to say, ah, I don't want to do this gatekeeping function. The only way forward for me is going to be command and control. I'm going to limit my number of funds to 12 or the number of securities that make you bill limit that. Maybe, maybe some firms are going to do that. And here's my here's my personal view on this. Just to make it clear. The gastrics. Is that in the client's best interest? Right? It's, is okay. it, in, it the is in the client's best interest such that the universe is not limited to a point where they cannot be adequately met? Now, that's a very open to interpretation statement, right? And I will say, like I said, with, with fund company, with, with banks, and I took a shot at them on this, is no one institution can guarantee that their proprietary product is the lowest cost index ETF, know that their active management is best in class across the board in every subcategory that exists. And so, so the reality is, is that they have to, they, they, you know, those companies are not want to be able to meet the client's best interest at all times because they can't guarantee that that, that uh, outcome. See, and, and what you're touching on right now, I think is the unintended outcome of the regulations is something that's going to, something- or What maybe a convenient unintended outcome for manufacturers and distributors alike. Right. Like, like for on, those who are currently integrated, so, what a convenient unintended outcome. Right, but the key point to kind of look at is this state of perfection or equilibrium is a utopian concept. What we're doing, right, with the regulations, and, and I think you're getting the gist of kind of which side of the fence I sit on. Yeah. The regulations are saying, look, do more, be a gatekeeper of, of the products that you're making available. Is that going to create potential issues down the line or potential imperfections? And that equilibrium is going to move, shift here and there? 100%. Now, yeah. but this is what I think the clients- Here's my one counterpoint, if I may. Again, this is a, you mentioned 20,000 changes or something like that, right? On a weekly basis. 
this is a data problem. This is not a, I need an entire, like back in the old days, it was like, I'm going to have to hire three fours of people to handle all this BS. This is a data problem. If you can't handle this, get your damn systems in order. Listen, hey, as a technology vendor uh, providing compliance pay relief, uh, quote unquote, that's where that's exactly what we do. That's what our intention is. And, and, and we firmly believe that this is a data specific issue. It's a big data problem, right? And okay. today, in today's day and age, a big data problem can be solved with high degree of confidence and in the client's best interest with technology. So let's come down to the advisors in the interest of time. And the advisors now have to do some comparative exercise, okay? Between knowing their product, proving that they know their product and their enhanced suitability requirements, they have to, what's been actually codified in the regs is consider a reasonable range of alternatives. Mm -hmm. This is a there's been a lot of time and hair pulling that's been done behind the scenes around what does this actually mean? By the way, quick tangent, the regulators south of the border have required the same requirement. Oh, yeah. it's, instead of reasonable range of alternatives, they've called it reasonably available alternatives. Yep. Semantics, really same thing. So what does it really mean? And this is the part that actually you have to consider as an investor post-December 2021. When your financial advisor recommends a product you can actually conveniently say, hey, how does this recommendation compare against similar products? They have to do that due diligence to act in your best yeah. interest, to truly uh, recommend the product that's most appropriate for you. Yeah, Why you know what's matter? interesting about that? I'm going to make a very tongue-in-cheek comment here. Once you've actually looked at all the evidence and given up on active management, this becomes a lot easier anyway, because <laughs> then it becomes about market exposure and cost. Like that's it, <laughs> right? So anyway, that's that's my tongue-in-cheek comment. And no another, I'm going to get some hate mail, but continue. There, that act, the, the debate about passive and, and active management is, is uh, it's a good one and it's going to continue, uh, I think, in our lifetime, Jason. But I think going back to the to specific requirements, what's interesting is what's going to come out of this, right? And in my opinion, I think what's going to come out of this, we're seeing snippets of it down, down south because don't forget, their requirements were came live in June of 2020. Mm -hmm. The regulators are now saying, going to firms and saying, knock, knock, all right, show me your process for considering a reasonable range of alternatives. And firms, I mean, this is where the, the level of professionalism is getting elevated, specifically purely by regulatory requirements. Is it perfect? Jason, completely agree with you. It ain't. Are we moving towards it? Probably. Because what the, what the financial advisor now has to do is say, all right, Every time I make a recommendation to Paramaseri, to Jason Pereira, let me make sure I've considered other options. Am I yep. recommending the most costly option, the highest risk option? If yep. so, I better know my product <laughs> and yep. do, do some due diligence that proves that I am not recommending the most highest uh, cost product. Which also lends itself towards advisors developing model portfolios where similar clients are basically put in the same portfolio. And it's amazing how many advisors push back on that, thinking that everybody in this world is, is a unique snowflake and that they have to be able to have a different portfolio for every for every client. That is a completely, un, like even pre-CFR, logistically impossible to maintain. Right. So reality is, is that it's this is actually on the advisor side, not that hard. It is determine how you're going to run money, develop portfolios that are models, develop different portfolios for different use cases and document your process for how you do it. And, you know, at least on an annual basis, but it should be more than that. Go back to it, the drawing board and make sure you're beating everybody's everybody's best interest. Let's move on to the last 10 poll suitability. This is the one that kind of ties the other two together. Right. Yeah. And I think we've touched on it a little bit already. And suitability, uh, I've kind of spoken a lot in the industry about the suitability is fundamentally a matching exercise. 
Are you high risk? Therefore, your investments have to be high risk. Are you low risk? Therefore, it's 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 a think about Lego pieces coming together, right? Yeah. So I know um, what you are. I know what the product is. These things have come together to say, based on all that, this is what you should have, right? Yep. Purely a matching exercise. Anybody with you know, if firms are not making suitable recommendations, that's a that's a separate issue. They sh- they should be hundred percent. Now, this yeah. best interest client focused reports piece says, look, in addition to uh, suitability. You've got to also consider several elements. You've got to consider, again, that concept of reasonable range of alternatives. How does, is it suitable? Can I make a recommendation to Jason Pereira that is suitable given his risk tolerance, time horizon, so on and so forth? Yes. Now, but is that recommendation the right one, the best one for Jason Pereira? So what that requires is some due diligence. This is where suitability and KYP do a little bit of a struggle where you say, all right, is this recommendation actually a, the lowest cost alternative or, or a lower cost alternative, a lower risk alternative? And I think this is where it's going to hit the fan a little bit. And we're seeing kind of snippets of this down south where regulators are saying, hey, show me your process for considering a reasonable range of alternatives. Right? And firms are like, well, we just we look up a few funds on, on online and here's yeah. the process. So that process now needs to be documented. And yep. what's Kind of, and you can now, as an investor, ask your post twenty twenty one. You can ask your financial advisor. Say, look, what alternatives did you consider before making this recommendation? This is going to be, in my opinion, a good way, a positive way to move the dial, a nudge to our industry to actually act in their client's best interest because of that simple requirement. If firms have a closed product shelf, this is I'm going back into the theory of this a little bit. The firms say, look, these are the only products I make available. That's not going to necessarily lead, in my opinion, to the long-term benefit of the client. Nope. Right? It's like saying going to a Mercedes dealer and saying, hey, I want best performing car. Well, is Mercedes the best performing car? Could there be better ones? So <laughs> Meanwhile, looking across at the street, the McLaren dealership saying, yeah, we can help you. Right. For the <laughs> price you want to pay, for the price you want to pay, what is the best alternative exactly. that's most appropriate for you? The car analogy always sticks in for me, but I'm sure there's other better analogies out there. Yeah, but no one no one goes to Mercedes dealership expecting to be sold a McLaren, right? But the reality is you go to a financial advisor, regardless of where you are, and specifically a lot of times the larger ones thinking, okay, so these guys are so big, they can do whatever. And that's not necessarily the truth. So to wrap this up in terms of what a client can expect. So let's, let me make sure I got this right. You can tell me if I'm right or not. So first off, you should expect your client, your advisor to be more proactive about collecting more personal information on you specifically. And again, don't take offense to this and think it's, it's invasive. The reality is, is that there's only so much an advisor can do if they don't understand who it is and what you, who you are and what it is you're trying to accomplish in your specific situation. So that's the first. The second piece is the advisors need to document and provide basically over or provide reasoning for what it is they are basically recommending. And the last part is in suitability, match those two up. Now, and I would say how as an as a client, the way you test that is you can simply be able to push point to any individual holding and say, well, why is it I hold that? And the advisor should be able to say something more than, well, it's launch and performance is great. Right. Like, or it's got a five-star morning star rating. Like never if that if that's what they're telling you, run away. Because five star becomes one star within five years. It's normal. So the reality is where is the thought process, the methodology, how often you should be able to get all those answers. And frankly, I would encourage any advisor listening to this to get ahead of this and document that for yourself in the next couple months and be ready to make that public. In fact, go ahead and put that on your website because frankly, that just shows that you're being that you're what your process is. And frankly, everyone who invests with you should understand your process to some degree. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jason. Well done. So Parm, thank you very much. This has been a good good back and forth. And you know, this is this got a little bit in the weeds of 
the industry as a whole, but I sincerely hope that the clients listening and the investors listening take this, this conversation to deep consideration because frankly, the proper implementation of this stuff just points to the fact that you're dealing with a diligent and responsible and professional advisor. If you're not seeing that, you got to question what's going on. Excellent. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that was this week's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I know it's a bit of a tangent compared to the normal ones, but again, this is a momentous change in regulation that will have impact uh, an impact on you. As you heard, from the very least, you'll be bugged more often, hopefully, for information, which is a good thing. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.